Hi, I'm Todd Nathanson. And I'm Danny Roth. And this is Song vs. Song, and we are taking today's episode in a bit of a different direction. Uh, normally, I pick the songs, and uh, my tastes lean a little towards the Jack FM. But I let Danny pick this one this week. So this week, we are doing Neutral Milk Hotels in the Aeroplane Over the Sea versus the Magnetic Fields' The Book of Love. Yeah, those jock jams. <laughs> yes, the jock jam classics. And uh, we have a guest in the studio today. Uh, w- please welcome back Andrew Underberger, deputy editor for Billboard.com. Welcome back, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me, Todd. We're, we're calling this the studio. Is that that's the uh, that's the official name? Did I did I say the studio? You sure did. No, 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 okay, well, like welcome it. back to, to your own room <laughs> where we are doing this over Zoom. You, you ever record in a studio before, Todd? You ever done that? Yes, your studio. My, oh, that's right. I did have you on one time when we when we did it, and but it wasn't my studio. It was the Reverend Al Sharpton's studio. Was it? It was. Yes. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. That's many moons ago when I had a real job. We recorded in a studio on whatever floor that was at Thirty Rockefeller Plaza, and it was technically at the time run by the people that uh, take care of the Reverend Al. Well, if you ever see the good Reverend again. Uh, Tell him thank you for letting him use uh, our studio, but we're uh, we're stuck in our homes now, and we're going <laughs> to talk about some uh, some indie rock, some late '90s indie rock. Is, is this the first uh, the first song by so- song versus song you've ever done with two songs that missed the Hot 100? Yes, I'm I'm pretty sure. Like the the indiest we've ever gotten is we did "Take Me Out" versus "Float On," mm. yeah. and you know those are giant hits. Everyone knows those. Like, but or at least giant compared to uh, you know neutral milk goddamn hotel, which a, a lot of people told me they didn't think was a real band name. Yeah, I, I have no sort of sense for what the. I mean, like obviously, in a lot of like the you know critic circles and and just like music obsessive circles in general, neutral milk hotel is a pretty big name, and I guess they're big enough to like get a you know Parks and Recreation. No, yeah, Parks and Recreation. <laughs> it was Parks and Rec, yeah. Show, yeah. Uh, so they, they, you know they, they clearly have some visibility at this point, uh, but. Yeah, I, I have no idea how how recognizable a name Neutral Milk Hotel is with with even like slightly no, less either. hardcore casual fans. Yeah, yeah, like this is like these are you know Danny wanted to do some of the indie rock he likes, and I, I picked these two because they are like the most indie famous mm. bands I can think of. Like if you have opened Pitchfork even once in your entire life, you have heard of these two bands. But if you haven't, then we were just talking gibberish right now, like. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's sort of the dividing line, I guess. Uh, what, what was the first time you remember even hearing about these two bands? I'm curious. Oh, geez. You know, I was listened to only country music until the late 90s. And it was like, well, I want to be hip. I want to learn about the, the rock and roll. And, uh, you know, I that was right around the same time I got the Internet. And I used to go to these message boards all the time. Uh, ILX was one of them. And like this was all they talked about, like mm-hmm. Neutral Milk Hotel and the Magnetic Fields. I didn't even know who you two were at the time. So <laughs> like this yeah. was, you know, these were, yeah, I guess my first introduction to the, the indie rock world. Yeah, this is sort of a snapshot. These two albums of like the web board era as being a relevant thing in indie music culture, I guess like that definitely, I, I was aware of both of these albums. I think first uh, th- through spin spin magazine, like uh, gave, gave a very glowing review to six Nine love songs and, uh, the Magnetic Field 69 Love Songs, where the, where the song comes from. Uh, and it was uh, it was on their like best albums in 1999 list. And uh, In the Airplane Over the Sea was on their best 90 albums in the 90s list, which was like a very big 
critical source for me when I was first getting into to music beyond radio and MTV and stuff. Uh, but even then, like they, they were they just sort of they were, they were kind of on the fringes of like mainstream music criticism. But it wasn't until Pitchfork started to become like a very big part of, of music culture. And I remember like on, on the Pitchfork web board that I, that I frequented at the time. They had a web board. Yeah, I think it was well, it, it was called something Pitchfork related at first. And then it became something called Hipinion, like hip opinion, Hipinion. I remember Hipinion. It was a, a ghastly, ghastly place. Uh, it was it, an it, awful it, place. Yeah, but if you were a serious music fan that wanted to talk about bands like this with other serious music fans, it was one of the only kind of available outlets at the time. And I, I remember, like, kind of early in my my tenure there, they did a like a favorite albums poll that everyone involved, uh, you know, sent in their favorite ten albums, they, they ranked or whatever. Uh, and I think in a, in the airplane over the sea, which was an album I had barely heard of at the time from that spin list, I think it was number three. It finished on that list, of like an all time albums list, like behind you know the Beatles and Radiohead and the Neutral Milk Hotel. So that was kind of like the first sense I had that this was a you know an album that had a sort of outsized importance for a lot of people. And and Six Nine Love Songs is the same sort of thing. Well, you know, we've talked about how we got to this. What's your pick? Actually, Danny, why don't we start with you? Because this was your idea, and uh, you haven't really said anything yet. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, first of all, um, I had the the way that I came to the songs has nothing to do with the internet, which I feel is like everybody else. Yeah, is like a music snob that read a magazine. Or went mm-hmm. to a, like a went to Usenet or whatever, but for me, b- both of these albums, both of these bands, um, were just related to people that I knew. You know, Magnetic Fields is a band that my friend Nick really loved, and I got into through him. And um, I got into uh, Neutral Milk Hotel because I was working in the back room of a blockbuster for a friend of mine, and he had hired this random woman. Uh, who had like I'd never met before. This was like a place that I traveled really far to work to as a favor for my buddy. And she was like, listen to this stuff. And we were friends within, I think, the first shift that we worked together. And like this was one of the albums that she was obsessed with at the time. Which one? Uh, Airplane Over the Sea. Although she played me Song Against Sex first, um, which is on Avery and Island, which is the the album before. Um, so that was, yeah, I have no, like, it had nothing to do with music snobbery, me getting into any of this stuff. It was just, I had friends that knew good music and were like, listen to this. And that was the end. This is also probably an unusual song versus a song for you guys, because like, this is, this is a, a sort of a rare example of two songs that really just cannot be separated from their parent albums. Like I, I could probably count. Yeah, this is, this is my, more of an album versus album, really. Yeah, it like, is. I, I could probably count the number of times in my life that I've heard either of these songs, like outside of their their album context on one hand, like they're very much parts of a a larger whole. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, I, um, I was not real. I didn't listen to them as albums until fairly recently. I want to say like mm. in the last five years or so. And I think, you know, in preparation for this was the first time I had listened to all 69 love songs. Yeah. Over the, I mean, over the course of several days, but like, I'd never actually listened to it as an album, honestly. Hmm. Which, you know, I feel like now that I have, I feel I definitely feel like I've missed I missed something with 69 love songs because that is that is something that is definitely more than the sum of its parts. And it's got a lot of parts. Yeah, like that. that I mean, a 69 track album should like you shouldn't be able to call that a perfect album. I, I, do, I do think that is a perfect album, not like because every song on it is great. I, you know, obviously there there's you know peaks and valleys and quality of, of you know, songs that you wouldn't necessarily ever want to listen to outside of the album. But. The, the the pacing of it and the sort of grandiose nature of it where like 
it, it, it does feel as close as, you know, 20th century art probably ever came to making it like sort of this definitive comment on the love song and definitive sort of representation of it. It represents like, not just like different perspectives on the love song, but like different, like, you know, dozens of different genre takes on it. Dozens of different structural takes, uh, perspectives from men singing about men, men singing about women, women singing about men, women singing about women, uh, you know, bisexual love songs, gender, you know, gender fluid love songs. Like it's just a really incredible achievement. And the, the songs that aren't as strong as the book of love and other kind of obvious highlights is still sort of add to the fabric of the album in a really inextricable way. And like, I, 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 for such like a daunting listen, it's, it's one of the albums I probably listened to the most in my life. Uh, I used to make a point of listening to it every Valentine's day back before I had any sort of actual connection with Valentine's (laughs) day as a, as a romantic entity. So uh, that was sort of my, like a yearly tradition, but to me, it's, 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 although it's like a challenging listen, it's it's like never a difficult listen. It's, It's really just a great album. Yeah, I, the only really challenging thing about listening to 69 Love Songs is its length. It's yeah. not like they're they're love songs, you know? They're some of them very short. Okay, can I ask you this? We, we well, I was going to ask which would you pick, but at first I want to ask you like did I pick the right songs from these two albums? Because I this did come up when I was discussing it earlier with at I think both of you really. These are the two songs I think of first. And also, they do have the most Spotify listens. So I was like, yeah, I got this right. But you you straight up told me, was like, no, the, the song from In the Airplane Overseas is Holland 1945. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, Daniel, uh, yeah see, both, of you, both of you said that to, to <laughs> me. Oh, yeah. So, I, I mean, for, for me, Holland 1945 is the song. I mean, maybe it's helped by the fact that it does stand out kind of apart from the rest of the album more than I think In the Airplane Overseas does because it's, it's, a, it's a very, like, punchy and, and, and sonically, like, like it sounds like the single to me. Like it, it, obviously none of these songs got anywhere near radio or MTV or any <laughs> other sort of uh, pop culture, like, you know, you know, context at the time. But if you were to like, if, if you were to submit one song to, to try to you know, get to play, uh, you know, between the new radicals and semi-sonic on 1998 alternative rock <laughs> radio to me, it would have been not Holland 1945. And that, that's also just a song that like, I feel sort of exists outside of the album. The most it, it, it's the, the song that like you could recommend to somebody and, they wouldn't necessarily need the deeper context of Neutral Milk Hotel. It's just kind of an accessible, you know, poppy rock song. Uh, and it's also the song, like, like I think it was played over the last episode of uh, the Colbert Report, maybe. Like, I, I don't know, Stephen Colbert is like a huge fan of that album. I think that that song played over like the end credits of, of the final episode. And it, it's it's the song that like I mean, when I went to NYU, you would occasionally hear it at like cool kid parties. Like, it, 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 that's just the song to me that in the airplane over the sea, the song is the title track of the album. It just sort of kind of fits in the middle of it like that doesn't that seems like an odd choice as the sort of standout highlight track but it is you know sort of a definitive choice i guess if uh if you're looking if you're just looking for one song to represent the album then that's not a bad call you know like you both of you told me that so i listened to that song a bunch of times like in a row and i listened to in the airplane over the sea a whole bunch of times in preparation for this including today i cannot sitting here tell you what holland 1945 wow. is or how it goes I, well, Danny, what was your reasoning? Were you sort of all on the same lines? Um, well, you know what? Again, it, I mean, it goes back to the same thing. Um, if I went after I was done working at Blockbuster to Gina's house and we pulled out our acoustic guitars and were like, let's play some shit. If we were going to play a song off of that record and like sing along to it loudly and badly, and by that, badly me, Gina's a great singer. Um, <laughs> that was the one that we'd sing. That was the one, you know, be Which, two, Holland? one, two, three, four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Like, well, that's, yeah. that's funny because like, if you're talking just two guys jamming on acoustic guitars, like that in the airplane over the sea seems like a great choice for that. Well, Gina is a yeah. woman, but uh, uh, well, yeah, 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 you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I, I did, I did Gen- see two you know, gender neutral guys. <laughs> I did, I did see like five million, uh, five million YouTube covers of "In the Airplane Over the Sea" that were just basically that that way you describe right now. I, just, I think it's just the easiest song. Like, if you just have an acoustic guitar, and you want to get in front of a microphone. Although I also yeah. mentioned to you a possibility. I think of the King of Carrot Flowers, which is the the opener of the album, and mm-hmm. so I think probably like for the for the first few years of of, of my life within the airplane over the sea is the song that I'm most associated with it because it had it's, it's two parts too. And it has mm. some of like the most, uh, you know, kind of distinctive lyrics on the album, the lines that get quoted the most. And it's another song that you, yeah, you just, you just pull out the acoustic and you, and you, you know, amaze your door mates and, and other <laughs> yeah. various fellow, uh, yes. As long, as long as you don't say anything about semen standing the mountaintops, <laughs> which I feel like, see, that's the thing to me. I always, like I did not re I know that it's a meme, this album, uh, but I decided I didn't want to know why if anybody else wants to speak to it. I just don't want to be depressed, you know, like I'm a, it's really weird. So let me actually let me ask this on, on that note. Um, it seems to me the little bit of research I've done uh, is that now with uh, many like a couple decades worth of hindsight of this album coming out, it seems as though the way that people view in the airplane over to sea is this. If you think. If you say this is your favorite album, it's kind of like saying that you really love Holden Caulfield and <laughs> and, 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 and The Catcher in the Rye is your favorite book. Uh, yeah, that's the impression I've gotten. In fact, there was one person on there and they admitted this isn't a perfect uh, you know, comparison. Someone else compared it as like saying you really love In the Aeroplane Over the Sea is like saying you really love Fight Club. Mm. Like... It's like, yes, I also love Fight Club, but I think I'm going to stand a little further away from you now, now that I know that about you. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I've seen people say that, like, um, it's kind of perpetually for younger people, for, like, people in their teens and 20s. So, you know, I would say I listened to it, obviously, for this, to the whole thing, and I still love it, but I love it in that way that my – when I was, you know, 20-something and heard it for the first time – that part of me loves it forever, but like I don't. It's like you know, just like if I watch a um, a show that's about teenagers on the CW, I can still enjoy those shows, but I don't enjoy them in the I am deeply connected and relate to you entirely. Give me the feels, teenagers, kind of way. It's it's interesting that I mean, you guys are both right that obviously that there's a lot of teenage appeal to this album, and, and that that is sort of the the time in your life that you're supposed to connect to it the most. And I certainly had friends in high school that, that had like very, very deep emotional connections to that album. Like I remember one of my friends was, was a writer at the time. Uh, and he was a huge fan of this album. He wrote like a, uh, when we, we both wrote for a, an online publication called stylist magazine. And he wrote like a, a first person essay about his experience with that album. I, I like learned more about him as a person from that essay than <laughs> I, I did in like years of talking to him just as a friend. Uh, you wouldn't like, think this is an, a sort of album that, that CW type teens would listen to though. It's like a very dense, very literary, very like kind of old skewing sounding album. I mean, it's got these like, he's gotten these musical influences from like the early 20th century, like Eastern European folk music and circus music and, and, you know, very, very out of, out of touch jazz music. And like, just, just, it's a very sonically kind of, I don't know. It's almost more challenging than the magnetic feels album, I think in that sense. Yeah, that's like a musical saw on there. Yeah, is the it, singing saw. Right? 
Gotta love that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's lyrically obscure. It's it's not like an emo album. You you wouldn't like confuse this for Pinkerton or you know Jimmy Eat World or something like that. But you're right. It does have this kind of rawness to it, the sort of emotional and lyrical raw, rawness to it that does seem to connect most when you're a when you're a teenager and kind of feeling those those sort of raw, more visceral emotions, and b when you're sort of starting to flatter your own sort of intellectual vanity and, and you're, you're kind of getting into albums that are a little bit deeper and a little bit more literary. And, you know, I, th- I think maybe even a better comparison from the film time than, than fight club might be like the Royal Tenenbaums, which, which also has that sort of aspiration to, to like, like, yeah, you know, deep yeah. literary density and, and, uh, and, and sort of like, it's a, it's a sort of thing that you get into when you're first starting to realize that there's a layer of art that goes deeper than just the stuff that you see in, you know, in multiplexes and here on yeah, the radio. Like, yeah, I could absolutely buy that this is April Ludgate's favorite <laughs> band. Yeah, that, that, that was a nice little character. character. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I feel wow, really called out that. right now. That, that Dude, I love that like, movie, too. It's, it's, it's not like, I, I don't think either this album or that movie are embarrassing in retrospect, but it does... Definitely when you think it's like the most profound sort of, you know, artistically rich sort of yeah. art that exists, then you sort of look back on that now and you're like, yeah, well, maybe, but also maybe not. Yeah, I, I um, you know, I I went back to like Pitchfork's repro- retrospective review of Neutral Milk Hotel and uh, they they made a point. It's like how un-90s that album is. Sure. Oh, yeah, very like, much so. Like, you, you know, Holland 1945 and the airplane over the sea, those are inspired by the diary of Anne Frank. And he's like he talking there about Jeff Mangum and he was like how moved and touched by he was by the diary of Anne Frank. And he was like the the book we all had to read in eighth grade. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, it's like it's I wrote an 90s. album about Flatland, man. It just really yeah. got to me. Yeah. And the, yeah. The, the most teenage thing about this album is kind of maybe how unafraid it is to be embarrassing. Like. There, there are a lot of those sort of very, very deeply uncool moments on this album, and there's that that turn. Yeah, that's why it's 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 a it's a pretty polarizing album, even among like indie rock fans. There's there's certainly a large faction of music critics and other general like tuned in listeners that really can't stand anything about this album and think it's incredibly overrated, don't understand the cult behind it, anything like that. Uh, but it's also reason why it has fans that you know. Is the kind of album that if it's your favorite album that you, you can almost develop an entire personality just around that. There's only so many albums like that that exist. Yeah, like I if if we're gonna do the compare and contrast thing, I think that's the big difference between uh, Mangum and Merritt here. Stephen mm-hmm. Merritt, who is the lead singer or you know lead songwriter of the Magnetic Fields, is that he his the '69 Love Songs feels I don't know not '90s ironic because that's something different, but there is something very arch and. Mm-hmm. I don't know, sarcastic, maybe. I don't. I don't quite know how to put it. It's very. He's got a very uh, more more sardonic than than sarcastic. Sar- maybe? Sardonic. That's a good word. Yeah. Like, look at all the vocabulary words we have to pull out to talk about either of these two <laughs> albums. But <laughs> different, different fare than Ghostbusters versus Men in Black. So yeah. Like different, yeah. Different, different discussion. Different uh, framework. I uh, I just wish that Jeff Jack, Jeff Mangum could be a guest so that um, we could ask him the all important question that I know that everyone has been wanting to ask him, which is. Do you think Anne Frank was a believer? <laughs> uh, simpler uh, times. Um, anyway, yeah. all right. So I wanted to sort of float one thing that I thought while I was going back and thinking about these two albums side by side, which is that um, I think that they are they make sense together, right? To, to match them up, and yet they, what I you like know, when you about play them back them, to back, they do sound like part of the same scene. 
Even they though, do. like, if you played the entire albums back-to-back, they feel very different to me, but, but these but, two songs in particular. But think about how opposing they are in this way, especially if you're thinking about um, the I, the two songs on the two albums, I guess. Because, like, on the one hand, you have an album that is about a dream a man had after reading the diary of Anne Frank and getting so emotional that he imagined a whole concept record about going back in time and saving Anne Frank from the Nazis and just loving her forever. And then on the other hand, you have someone that was like, what if we made 69 love songs? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And like, obviously like there's more to 69 love songs. Like once you dig into it, but like, here you have something that's just a very simple idea. We're just going to, like, there's a lot of love songs out there. We're just going to explore every side of love you can imagine with 69 songs about the same topic. And then the other one you have, like, I had a dream about Anne Frank, and maybe if I sing long enough, it will become a time machine and I will save her. Seaman <laughs> stains the mountaintops. Um, I, I, the Anne Frank uh, interpretation of In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, I think, Possibly it's become a little overstated with time. I mean, obviously parts of it are very directly inspired by it. Some other parts might be more abstractly inspired by it. I wouldn't necessarily consider it a concept album in the purest sense, but no. there's definitely. But it's influenced by the, all that stuff. And for sure. if you look at it lyrically, like, good grief. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just the way that Mangum constructs a lyric versus the way that Merritt constructs a lyric. These are These things are... V- fundamentally different to me i see them almost as opposites in that way yeah it's interesting because they're they're, they both have these very singular visions for these albums but they're also both kind of imagined perspectives like neither of them are are really either artists kind of singing about an actual person or like they're yeah they're not about yeah they're i guess in character i guess yeah and and it's it's extremely so with the 69 love songs where a, he's not even the only, uh, Stephen Merritt's not the only person singing on the album. He, he gives several of the songs to uh, Claudia, I can never remember her last name, but she, a, a great vocalist in that band too. Uh, and yeah, he, very, very clearly some of the songs are, are taken from historical perspectives. Some of them are taken from, uh, you know, just flip, you know, flipping genders, whatever. But, but yeah, n- neither, both albums feel like extremely personal statements that aren't necessarily done in first person, which is, which is pretty interesting. Well, you know, we haven't even asked the main question yet. Like, if you had to be listening to one of these two songs right now, which one would it be? And yes, we are going to stick to the one song versus the one song on this one. Like, what, what's, what's your answer there? Going into this, I would definitely have said The Book of Love. Uh, listening to them back to back today, I was, I was a little bit surprised by how close they were, uh, kind of in my, in my estimation. But I, I would still say that uh, if, I had to, yeah, if I had to listen to one song, it would be The Book of Love. I would take the opposite. For me, it's in the airplane over the scene. And I think that that is partly because of personal attachment. Like, I don't, I'm definitely not judging this from like a scholarly perspective at all. Um, Book of Love was never one of my big songs. I didn't know for a long time that that was the big one off of that album. Like, there are so many other tracks off of it. It's, off it's of hard that to be the, the, the one song from the 69 love songs, like, be better than the other 68. And I'm not sure I, that's my pick for the first, my favorite of that list either i mean it's up there i'm probably top 10 but but it did end up becoming a very close one for me too and there's something that i wanted to point out um in my research um sometimes we like to look at covers like other people saying the songs to kind of get a vibe 
Um, and we're, I suspect that we will come back to this very topic when we're doing um, listener comments. But the one thing I really noticed is that when I listened to other people doing Book of Love, it was always too on the nose, too heartfelt, that there is that sardonicness to what Merritt does with his voice. And in point of fact, I've seen him do um, live versions of it where it isn't as good as the recording. There's something that he captures that is both genuine and sarcastic at the same time throughout in that song that is so singular that I I must have listened to a hundred different things and maybe found one person that I thought did it with that same kind of thing where I thought I really like it. Because if you go too far in one direction or another, I find it unendurable. I can't stand it. Whereas in the airplane over the sea, when I went on YouTube and just looked at people play it, playing it, I was like, anyone can play this. Like anyone can sit down <laughs> and play it, and everybody sounds fine. Because like, it, it, it's funny. I, I, I had I had this I had the same reaction as you did doing the same thing with the YouTube videos. And I would, if I had to guess, I would have really thought it would be the opposite because the the, the, the lyrical vision of the Neutral Milk Hotel album seems so much more specific to me and so much more like so so much harder to adapt to. A cover, I would think, just because it, it it seems so singularly Jeff Mangum. But you're right; like, like it's basically just a, a an acoustic guitar ballad, and anyone can do that. But that there there is a, that that blend of the the sentimental and the sardonic that that kind of is all in all the best magnetic field songs that nobody seems to understand how to get the vocal balance of, and nobody seems to get totally right. And I I, I think that's that's partly a fault of like. You know the, the the industrial wedding complex that that turned this song into kind of one of the classic like getting married songs of the Terrible. last twenty five years. I, I hate that. I despise that. Yeah, it um, really sells the song short because it's just not that song. But no. I think everyone who covers it, everyone who covers it, comes at it from that angle. And it, you're right, it, it doesn't work. It's like I, um, every politician that ever used "Born in the USA." You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's that. I mean, I don't know how else to see it. Like you, you don't know what that song is about, apparently. Um, and yeah, it's deceptively tricky to do that song justice, I think. As simple as it is, I don't know. I Very rarely have I heard anyone do it right. I, I'm glad to hear both of you saying that because I was like cruising through the comments of, in preparation. And a lot of people, the Magnetic Fields version is not the version they know. It's the, the Peter Gabriel version, which he put out in 2010 and apparently was in the Scrubs finale. Oh, are we going to do this now? <laughs> I, I, I is this a big thing? I've never I barely watched Scrubs. I watched Scrubs, did not remember that this was the song that they played in the finale, but let me tell you something. I sat down and listened to that Peter Peter Gabriel version. It is one of the worst covers I've ever heard in my life. It's so wow. incredibly wrong. He's got the tone so incorrect. It's way too sentimental. It's way too saccharine, and it ruins the song completely. In my opinion, I, th- I, I I'm, I'm so glad to be. I think we're going to make a lot of commenters angry, but like, thank God someone said it. Oh my I, god, I apologize. <laughs> it's also just not in his vocal range. Like he has to keep switching <laughs> octaves because he can't seem to figure out which part of it works better. Like it, it, it's you're right. It's a it's a total mess of a cover, and I, I didn't. I didn't watch that Scrubs finale in real time. I think I checked out on the show by then, but I did watch it. I did watch that montage, that closing montage scene on YouTube today. Like if I, if you were to kind of illustrate to somebody else, like if you're trying to make the argument against Scrubs, that's the scene that you use. <laughs> it's, <laughs> oh, it's really bad. Um, like I, you know, I, I haven't listened to, you know, Magnetic Fields for a while. Like it's just something I kind of fell off on. So I, you know, I refresh my memory coming into this episode. And I listened to that the Book of Love and I the, the second verse about how the Book of Love is full of music 
and some of it's good and some of it's really dumb. I was thinking about it in the shower the other day and I just died laughing. I just... <laughs> It's also kind of satirical. Like it's kind of like, and most of the best songs on this album are. They're also while while they're celebrating their love song, they're also kind of making fun of it and taking the piss out of it. And just even even the the most somber and sort of ponderous love songs on that album don't take themselves one hundred percent seriously at any point. And no, there's a very Morrissey, Oscar Wilde type of uh, energy coming off of it. It's like like you can take. I think you already said it. It was it's just like the perfect blend of uh, being genuine and being, uh, you know, being ironic in either direction, you will miss what makes this song good. And that's probably, are, are, are there any like entirely ironic covers of this song? I'd actually be interested in hearing that just because I've, I've heard so many yeah. of the, the, the super sentimental ones. I wonder if there are any I know, like me kinda... first in the gimme gimme's. I don't <laughs> <laughs> Scott covers. Of those. What a perfect yeah. answer. Yeah. I don't know. There's just like, man, Merrick's he's just such a good, lyricist i always see like for me the the song of this album is i think i need a new heart just because uh it's I got a lyric I in there that new it's i mean it's a fun song but yeah. like i love the part where um it's i guess it'd be the bridge where he says uh i i always say i love you and i mean turn out the light and i say let's <laughs> run away when i just mean stay the night and the words you long to hear you will never hear from me i will never say happy anniversary never stay to say <laughs> Happy anniversary. What a what a fucking brilliant lyric. It's and it's so simple. Like there's nothing complex about it, but like it's just when you can do the the most with the least, and that is the thing that he excels at. Yeah. And there's some great one minute songs on this album, you know, how fucking romantic and mm. very funny and yeah, Re- it, it, Reno Dakota is only like a minute and a half, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. I really like that one. Yeah. Uh, what's what's your favorite of the the 69? Like, uh, I, I like when my boy walks down the street. I think that was that was oh, that was the one, one I gravitated yes. towards most on on, on recent re-listen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, you you could really ask thirty people and get twenty eight different answers. I think to this question, like you it, got it's, options, it's, you got yeah. options exactly. And, and like, I, I, also, I, I just love. Like I, I love this. I love the songs that are that are sort of half concept songs and kind of never really come together, but still like like Zebra. I think is one of my favorite album closers in history, even even though it's a <laughs> totally nonsensical song about the you know wanting wanting a gift zebra like the fact that he closes this this grandiose collection of songs with this uh sort of half thought out uh you know accordion <laughs> romp is is i don't know i i really just love everything about this album and nothing none, nothing about it is out of place to me it's a it's a very her majesty kind of ending sure. like at the end of abbey road yeah just like well yeah these both are like have a bit of a an abbey roadness to them i get i guess Maybe in the airplane, well, like the, the medley, where it's just like a bunch of ideas that we just yeah. slap together, but except it's five hours long. Yeah, good grief! Um, and it literally goes A to Z too. Uh, all my little words to zebra, and, and every every letter of the alphabet has at least one song. That's wait, no, it's, it's, it. Like, it starts on absolutely cuckoo, doesn't it? Isn't that the first? Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, absolutely cuckoo. Yes, absolutely cuckoo. Yeah. Well, actually, no. But agree. Double to start, yeah. Okay, um, can I ask a question? I actually did something I've never done in my life in preparation for this, which is that I listened to Neutral Milk Hotel and Magnetic Field songs that are not from these two albums, mm-hmm. which I feel like is going above and beyond. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, you guys know know this stuff better than I do, like. Is there anything worth checking out? Because I, I know the Mag- Magnetic Fields were, you know, indie darlings before 69 Love Songs. And I guess Neutral Hill, you, you mentioned one off the top of my head. But honestly, I, I you know, I cruised through several albums. I just did not hear anything that hit me like I did off of uh, their two big ones. Yeah, uh, I mean, Stephen Merritt, it might be kind of 
cursed by his own prolificness, prolificity, mm-hmm. uh, amount of, of prolific. Yeah, I know the magnetic fields is not the only thing he does. Yeah, so it's the magnetic fields. It's the sixth it's the future Bible heroes. I think he has some stuff under his own name. Like, he, he, yeah, he's got and, soul and lungs. Th- and and this isn't even his own his only like multi disc, uh, you know, huge concept album. He had a he had an album called Fifty Song Memoir. I think a couple of years ago. Yeah, one song that, for every year of his life. And it's great. Although I, I just because I don't have as much time to to listen to new albums as I used to, I've, I've only listened to that once or twice. Whereas I've listened to this album several dozen times. But uh, and, and just about every album he's ever put out, and some there's there's some years where he has three or four albums just in just in that year. Uh, almost all of them have at least one or two songs that are kind of spellbinding to me. But this, the, 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 the problem is that there's just so many of them and not all of them kind of cohere the way that this one does. And there's not like an easy sell line to it that there is with 69 love songs that even though like the songs on this album might not even necessarily be on the whole, that much stronger than on his, his kind of work a day, you know, regular single LP releases. Uh, but there's just so there's just such an obvious hook to this album, and and it's so brilliantly put together that it seems like he only has this one great album, and, and the other albums are, are just kind of you know addendums to his discography. But I, I, it's it's hard to know even where to start recommending non sixty nine love songs songs of his. You almost need like a just like a, you know a fifty track Spotify playlist or something. Yeah, uh, the neutral milk hotel. The only song I could name from theirs that isn't on this album is the one that Danny mentioned earlier, which is song against sex, sex. Which, which, which is a corker. And it's kind great. of like a, a dry run for Hall in 1945, I would say. Uh, I've listened to uh, the uh, on Avery Island, but I, I don't remember okay. a lot of it. Yeah, it's not really memorable. Um, I think there's a lot of good stuff that the Magnetic Fields have put out, but it is hard to sort of pinpoint for me like one album that I'm like, got to listen to that one. Um, I guess listen to The Charm of the Highway Strip because it's yeah. got Born on a Train, which is for me like one of my absolute all-time favorites. But um, the two albums that they put out after 69 Love Songs both have um, I Has Got Some Good Stuff on it, and um, I think Distortion has Too Drunk to Dream, which, boy, if we're going to talk about these albums for real, for real, uh, there's some things I'll have to talk about as as relates to the people <laughs> that I knew, and Too Drunk to Dream is one of those songs that it's hard for me to listen to now because it's so directly related to stuff I was going to going through at the time when I got into Magnetic Fields as a band, because that, again, speaking of fucking lyrics that really destroy you, the lyrics are, uh, sober life is a prison, shit-faced it is a blessing, sober nobody loves you, shit-faced they're all undressing. I gotta get too <laughs> drunk to dream, because dreaming always makes me blue, I gotta get too drunk to dream, because I only dream of you. It's, ugh, it's just That's brutal. It's a brutal fucking – and the way that he does it, like there's something about the uh, the instrumentation and the way that it's recorded and the way that he sings that, that like it really sounds like he is just drunk out of his mind and has been for like the last year straight because he just can't get over this person that he lost. Um, it's just a really – like they, there's just stuff on – like I feel like there's at least one song on every record that's like that high of a quality. Yeah, I got a shout out to uh, to Andrew and Drag as well. I can't remember which album that's on. I think it's one of the, the mid aughts albums, but not a lot of great songs with Andrew in the title out there. So uh, <laughs> shout out to that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's really, it is really, really, really hard because these songs, like I said, I, I keep, I kept coming back to the same thought, which is they make so much sense as a pairing, but like I don't know how to judge them against each other. It's really hard because they are so different and they also occupy very different 
places in my brain. The closest thing that they have in common is that they both are associated with like elements of regret from mess, messed up shit I did in my youth. That's it. <laughs> yeah. The first time in the aerop- I heard in the airplane over the sea, I thought it was like, wow, this is great. But I've never had a single other thought about it other than, hmm. wow, I like this. And I have never had any other thoughts about it. And like, listen to you guys, you know, extemporize like how much this means to you. I've just never felt that for Neutral Milk Hotel. I just, I, I'm not like on the anti squad like you mentioned earlier, but mm-hmm. it's much easier for me to have thoughts and opinions and takes about the magnetic fields than it is for Neutral Milk Hotel. Like you said, it is that album is pretty dense, but like. I, th- I feel like Merritt would get closer to my heart than uh, Jeff Mangum ever could. And, you know, like when you brought this up to me, it's like you started going, you knew everything about Jeff Mangum. You talked about him like, you know, BTS stands talk about Jungkook, <laughs> Danny. And it's like you knew <laughs> what he looks like, what, he, you know, who he's married to and all this oh, stuff. Oh, that was because like, somebody had once told me this. And I, I it's not like as true as, as as it was made out to me to be, but it is a little true. Which is that his wife actually looks a little bit like he went back in time and saved Anne Frank and married her. Wow. Uh, you, just, a, just a little. No, a lot. You brought it up. I looked it up. And, <laughs> yeah. It's, Sorry, I don't, I guess I don't want to. I just feel such a weirdo yeah. even yeah. suggesting that that's true. But somebody has said it to me, and it, I, I have only been able to think about it since. Um, I was like, maybe he did have some sort of time machine. Uh, but yeah, I don't, this I don't is know. The pl- this is the plot of Safety Not Guaranteed, oh, starring my. Aubrey Plaza, who plays April Ludgate, who loves Neutral Milk Hotel. Hotel. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, here's what I'll tell you. And I think that this is true for everybody. It, I, I think. Yeah, like I said, you're going to like one of these songs over the other, I think, if you like them all along, based on what your personal attachment is. I like Magnetic Fields because when I switched colleges over, um, after I had a really disastrous first year at the first university I went to, uh, I was really nervous about making new friends. And one of the first friends I made was this really quiet unassuming guy that was like, like to play D and D, but like really liked it. Cause he liked history stuff and like, liked poetry and was like, just like so soft and loved the magnetic fields. And I got into it because he was like probably the first person that I connected with when I felt like I was kind of starting my life over again. And, um, then he suddenly got into drinking and started drinking way too much. And I was too young to know how to deal with it. And I dealt with it really badly. And I was like, you're a fucking alcoholic man. And like, we didn't talk for years about it. And like all of magnetic fields is wrapped up in that. Oh, is that who we were talking about? I thought we were talking about neutral medical tell. I'm so no, this is, this is magnetic. <laughs> that's why too drunk to dream has like a really weird sort of, cause he would get drunk at a bar. And like when we'd leave, like he'd like put it on the, on the, on like the car radio or whatever. And like, oh, wow. and like scream it at us. And, uh, and it was just, you know, and like, it was, it was all our failings. Like he had just gotten into a a spot and I don't think any of us as his friends really knew how to deal with it. And so magnetic fields, that's what I think of when I think of that. And when I think that's a funny thing that, um, you know, you, you, you were just saying about you, you had a friend who wrote an essay about neutral milk hotel and like was extremely revealing. And, uh, Danny, you just told us all that. Like, and I was reading the comments. It was like, 
I was worried no one was going to have uh, opinions on this because, you know, <laughs> this isn't Ghostbusters versus Men in Black. Who knows these songs? Well, it was like it's one of those things where if you do know it, you have very, very strong opinions about it. Because I got a bunch of people jumped in. It's like, I've never commented before, but I'm commenting on this. And it, it, it kind of goes back to you know, Daniel saying about how like he, he associates this album with certain people. Like These are both kind of. I don't know, like like flag in the sand albums is like if you if you met somebody and you were looking through their CD binder because this, this was still that era and they had one of I these two those. albums, yeah, they had one of these two albums in their collection. Then you 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 kind of sort of already knew that you were going to have a sort of kinship with them if you were also one of the people that was was into one of those two albums. They were they were because it wasn't an album that anyone kind of casually stumbled upon in either case. Like it wasn't like oh I you know I I saw their video when it was a buzz clip on MTV or like oh I saw it had like a good review in Rolling Stone or whatever like. These were albums that like they kind of said something about you if you were into them. So you could you could kind of back when you sort of made friends by having similar taste in music with people, you could kind of identify your people through these albums. And that's that was kind of a powerful thing at the time. Yeah, like something happened that like that with me the other day. They mentioned Yola Tango and I was like, Oh, what's your favorite Yola Tango song? And then they just kind of <laughs> you like Yola Tango? <laughs> Yeah, I speaking of people who I could have put it up against Neutral Milk Hotel. But but they yeah, their their sure. careers I mean their careers actually like the the sort of photo negative of Neutral Milk Hotel like whereas Neutral Milk Hotel had this one album that sort of was this became this totemic thing that their their entire artistic identity was based around. Yola Tango have been consistently putting out good albums for 35 years and like they 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 have no career peaks and valleys. There there is no sort of ground swelling of cult appreciation. They'll never be mentioned on Parks and Recreation like they're just they just are always Yola Tango and that, that that's they're, they're, it, it has a low ceiling, but it's also about as bulletproof a sort of identity as a band can have. Yeah, like Yola, both the Magnetic Fields and uh, Neutral Milk Hotel showed up on that Rolling Stone 500 albums list they put out a couple months ago. Not very high. Uh, let me, I'm pulling up. Yeah, the Magnetic Fields is the 406 greatest album of all time. And... Yeah, too low. Well, yeah. that that Rolling Stone list, like I, I can't get angry about it because it was just like an industry voted list. It wasn't like their ten editors got together and was like, "Hey yeah. guys, what do we want? To, what do we think of the best albums?" It was like they sent out a, a poll to Beyonce and uh, uh, I think one of the one of the Beastie Boys and like like a, mm-hmm. a million different other musicians and industry leaders. And it's not worth getting this granular about on your podcast, but like there, <laughs> there's no point in arguing like this album was like, how can this be higher than that album? Well, how could it be higher? Cause other people thought it was better. I don't know. Yeah. Like it, it, it wasn't, it's a weird it's, it's list. Not, it's a very weird yeah. list, but that, but both these albums are on it. Neutral milk hotels at three seventy six, and uh magnetic fields at 406. So neutral milk hotel by that metric is 30 better than the magnetic fields. Although I, guess I should say, I am sort of, I don't take umbrage at them not being higher, but I am sort of surprised that they're not higher because they are two albums who I feel like their reputation hasn't really been lost over time. I mean, obviously, like, if you're thinking about like what's relevant in music today, it's not like chamber pop or, you know, Elephant Six derived indie rock or, or any, any of the sort of genres uh, on, this, not, on, on these albums. They're but, not, but, not that, especially the magnetic fields one. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like, if I turned on indie rock, I wouldn't be surprised to hear Neutral Milk Hotel or Magnetic Fields, I guess. Sure. Well, yeah, sure. But but I'm just saying, like, they're not like, like what's cool right now is not is not bands that take influence from Neutral Milk Hotel or uh, Magnetic Fields. But, but I only say that to say that despite that, like, I think these albums still do sort of stand out as, uh, you know, kind of essential albums from that period that aren't necessarily tied to that period. It's not like. 
like I, I'm surprised. I, I imagine that at least one Pavement album finished higher than either of those. And the Pavement, also like a great '90s indie rock band, they sound sort of very, very like a sort of definitively '90s indie. Like when you think about what '90s yeah. indie sounds like, you think of Pavement. Yes, I do. Things sort of evolved from that, but like when, it, but it's not like you can't listen to that album and, and not think that it came out in the nineties. You can listen to these <laughs> albums and they, they sort of exist in, in a, in a world by themselves on their own plan. They're, they're, they're not, tied I agree. To a Absolutely. Scene. Not tied to a these are, these are very timeless albums. Or like you said, neutral milk hotel. It sounds like it could have been made in like 1903, but yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And, and, and the magnetic fields one's very tin pan alley. Really? It's, you know, very pre rock and roll kind of way of writing lyrics and stuff with like very corny or like very forced rhymes, I guess. Yeah, and, and he's like a huge exact. Cole Porter acolyte and like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, loves old Broadway. And it, 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 it is interesting that they both are kind of albums that take a surprising amount of influence from the first half of the 20th century at the very end of the 20th century. There were certainly weren't a lot of other albums from that period that you would say did that. OK, good. So that, that means it's a good matchup because I wasn't sure about yeah. that. But <laughs> <laughs> and we never actually answered about this being the uh, song from the Magnetic Fields album to go with. <laughs> I think it is, even though you know, yeah. it might not be any of our favorites and it might not necessarily be like, I don't know, musically representative of the exact average sonic identity of that album. Uh, it does feel like it's the song that kind of lives outside of the album a little bit. And yeah, it, I definitely it, it, encountered it out. I don't know where, but I've definitely heard this song outside of me listening to whatever I feel like at a wedding. Is, almost certainly. I mean, I think that, yeah, yeah almost definitely you have. And you could, you could almost say that it's like his hallelujah maybe. And, and that it's sort of been oversimplified by mediocre covers over the, the, the decades. But yeah, you go back to the original and it's kind of a weird and sort of, he's know, got a voice like, like Leonard Cohen song. too. So he's yeah. got a very similar singing voice. You know, you guys came on separate uh, things and I honestly don't know where, which one I'd pick. I really don't. Like, All right. I'm I gonna, really love both these songs. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make one last play for in the airplane over the sea because I feel like I haven't yet. So this song and this album, right? Like people often like, we'll talk about the, some of the weirder lyrics as Seaman stands the mountain tops and like there's weird stuff that's like kind of like as your mouth moves in mind soft and sweet like like i never when i liked it connected it despite that stuff with a sexual type of love and the reason for that is and the reason why i like that song is that when i so when i worked at at, at the blockbuster and, and i met uh gina right like we had this connection immediately but it wasn't like a like a rom com like Boy Meets Girl like you like this album too and then like they like go off into the sunset together like there was never any of that on either of our sides like neither of us felt like a romantic connection we felt like a really intense like I think instant kind of like almost like what what love is like but like there was none of that stuff but like I don't. Most of my friends I don't feel that way about, but, like, we immediately bonded. And that record and that song about, I don't know, there's just something that it captures in that feeling. And that's what I love about it, is that, to me, I always associate it with understanding the ability to love somebody completely without some of the bullshit trappings. Um, There's something very pure about it. And that it understands that that things end and people die and that that's okay. I don't know. I just like it's it's just a beautiful, perfect song for me, um, even though it's not the one that I, I usually think of first from the album. I, it still just like grabs me in, in a way that almost no other song ever has. And I have, I have to say, like, 
even though I, I've known this song for almost, you know, almost 20 years at this point, I think I first heard this album like in 2001, 2002, something like that. I never really considered that, that it really is just kind of a straightforward love song. Like I, not until listening to it today, did I, did I realize that that, 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 that is basically just what this is. And then, and, and the, the lyrics are you know sort of abstract, like, like all the lyrics on this album are, but it, it really is kind of a beautiful song about connecting with another person. Like I, it, it, it's, uh, it, it stood out more just as, yeah, just, just as a love song that, uh, that, that, the rest of the album never never quite connected with me on that level, but there there is something about this song that that, that really is kind of kind of beautiful, and it, it, it it's it's not yeah like you're saying it's not like a boy meets girl sort of love song in the typical way, but it's just sort of a like in love with life in a way as well as like, like it's like finding your love of of life and of existence through your love of, of another person. That's kind of a beautiful thing to write a song about. And, uh, yeah, I, I definitely appreciated it more in exercise for this uh, than, than I had before. For um, the Book of Love, I think it has just one of the greatest opening lines I've ever heard. Because, you know, they didn't invent the the metaphor of the Book of Love. That's like from like the 50s songs and stuff like that. And they just, the Book of Love is long and boring. And it's like, that's a great line. It's like the, there's a literal book and it's just like this boring text, like every other religious text that's ever existed. And then you get to the part where it's like, but I love when you sing, you know, read it to me and I was like I don't know maybe I, I'm a jaded hipster that first you have to come up with like some kind of comic image and then o- walk over it for to get to the the sincere part but that's what really hits for me and as much as I love in the airplane over the sea I think I'd I think I'm going to be the tiebreaker and go with the magnetic fields here unless you have changed your answer just now Andrew like <laughs> Oof. Uh, <laughs> no I, I gotta go with history on this one it's been, it's been a, a long road for me with the with 69 love songs and, and the book of love so i think i'll stick with that even though this this uh this this current dalliance with the within the airplane over the sea is, is sort of yeah i can't, more I can't wait expected. for the popular vote to prove me right you <laughs> know electoral I, I say, college stop, in this podcast stop the count. <laughs> <laughs> Can I can I say one thing about in the airplane over the sea that drives me nuts even on this listen? Yeah. What? That they never actually say the title in the song. They say from the airplane over the sea. Are you I serious? Don't, I don't know. Yeah, in the lyrics, you know, the, the, I can't remember the exact lyric, but something about like, oh, you know, when we die, they'll scatter our ashes from the airplane over the sea. No way. Uh, I don't believe you. <laughs> check it out, my man. But uh, it's what it's, in the four non blondes you know? is going on here. <laughs> I don't know where I think probably in the airplane over the sea just reads as a better title than from the airplane over the sea. But uh, as someone who's obsessed in general with the, the placement of titles in song lyrics, uh, that that does kind of drive me nuts. Yeah, I guess I, doesn't, right. I, I can't lie. That doesn't bother <laughs> me at all. But um, no, but I, but I I've never you. noticed that before. And it's going to drive me insane. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yo, but you know what, Andrew, it's fine that you did it. But Todd, you're weird. You're weird. <laughs> Stop being weird. <laughs> no, thanks for being the tiebreaker again, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So do you want to do the the, we, the three we, questions or it, we're pretty obligated, yes. All right. So boy, these are very these are very different questions for songs that are not like huge, huge pop hits, but um yeah. let's let's try them out. All right. So we do three questions for every episode. It's gonna kind of help us understand how they, they work in a, in a lyric way, in a sonic way, and in a historical context kind of way. Um the first question is uh one of these songs, uh, and only one, can last in the memory of mankind, uh, and the other will be lost forever. It goes right in the garbage, and it will be erased. 
like uh, like like uh, like like Marty McFly's siblings on the on the photo and in, in, in Back to the Future, except he fails. Which is the which is the one that can go, and which is the one that has to stay? I'm going to read. I'm going to jump ahead and read one of the comments here. Uh, Jerry Noy writes: There are 68 other love songs on that Magnetic Fields album that we you know that we still have without Book of Love, plus a very lengthy discography overall. But in the aeroplane over the sea is definitely missing something without the title track. That's a pretty good comment, I think. Who said that? Oh, Did you that, say that's that? Funny, I, I was going to say the exact opposite as my reasoning for why oh, wow. the Book of Love is the answer. Like to me, even though there are sixty-eight other love songs on this album, there's only one that would be this kind of like oft-covered, oft-wedding songed song. Like the, the, this is that song. It does kind of have this sort of weight to it that even most of the other best songs of the album don't have. Uh, and I, I do think that in the airplane over the sea. While it's you know, it's probably a highlight on the album, there are other songs on it that kind of come at the same sort of material from similar sonic and lyrical perspectives. Like if if you were to if you could just kind of you know close the gap on this album that within in the airplane of the sea, the song with O Comely or Two Headed Boy or like one or two other songs of the album, I don't I don't think you're losing a ton of the album's core identity. I think you're losing a lot from 69 Love Songs. Without uh, I love. I completely disagree. I see the exact yeah. opposite of that. For me, it's like, like I said, you know, Book of Love is not even, like, it's it's great. Don't get me wrong, but there are so many of the tracks on that that I really love. Whereas if I listen to In the Airplane Over the Sea, I'll just listen to the whole thing straight through. And I think every single one of those songs kind of links arm with the other. And I think if you take any one of them away, even one of the less strong ones, the whole album is knocked down considerably. I think you need every single one of them because there's only 11 uh, and one yeah. of them is an instrumental. Like I just, I think that every last one of them is necessary and I cannot imagine uh, you know, any a, one a, of them a, going away. Thing. Like the book of love exists outside of that album in a way that in the airplane over the sea does not. So if you lose that, you lose a lot besides just the album. But if you're just looking at just the albums, then 68 love songs is fine, but in the aeroplane over the sea is not. So I, I see exactly where both of you are coming from here. Maybe the answer is just that uh, if we lose the book of love, we also lose all the covers of the book of love. So maybe that would yeah. be the greater good anyway. Yeah, so, seems yeah. like a win for me. Yeah, yeah I'm really sorry, all you commenters who were brought to the book of love from Scrubs and from Peter Gabriel. You're, you are allowed to like that very bad, awful nightmare cover that makes my ears bleed. You're allowed. You that's, do. that's mean. You're allowed to like it. You're allowed to like, <laughs> like, I don't know like why I'm being such a condescending ass. Like I just, I really aggressively dislike it. And I, it doesn't mean that anyone's wrong to like it, but gosh, no, I, re- I actually, Andrew, I remember you saying once that, Speaking of Zach Braff, you also really, really disliked Iron and Wine's cover of Such Great Heights. Such great heights. Yeah, the, the sort of like straight faced, folky cover movement of the early to mid aughts was was not doing it for me in general. Uh, that was kind not, of the low end of my like that, that, that was sort of the moment where I kind of got out of music altogether for a couple of years when, <laughs> when Pitchfork started to kind of go too deep into that, like Sufjan and uh, early Animal Collective and, uh, Uh-oh. you know. Glad we yeah, didn't do a Sufjan type territory. I, I, I've come around to a lot of that stuff since, but it, it just wasn't the way for me back at that time. And, and I was like, all right, maybe maybe my attention is best best spent elsewhere. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, the, 
the, sort of the scrubsification of of this song is kind of a shame in general. Uh, and and I guess uh, if we, yeah, if we're, if we're to lose that, that's that's not the, the biggest loss. Yeah. All right. Um, second question. This actually is really interesting with these two. Um, you could be a fly on the wall. You could experience the entire process of these songs being created, soup to nuts. Um, and I guess that would mean in this case, inexorably meaning that you would get to sort of witness the creation of these entire huge and important records, but you can only be around for one of them. What is the one that you desperately want to witness the creation of? If either one, I guess, you know, like I imagine that the making of in the airplane over the sea is more intricate, I guess, more like doing more interesting things in the studio versus 69 love songs where I kind of imagine it like the Brill building or like Tin Pan Alley where you're just like, all right, we need uh, we need 300 songs by the end of the week. Just, you know, snap them out. Go, 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 go. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but it, it seems like it's a lot of effort and a lot of writing, but not a, a lot of focus, I guess, which is weird. Like that. Uh, now that I say it outside, that doesn't sound right at all, because those are those songs are, you know, very different. It's. All 69 of them are very different from each other, but there's so many of them. That's like, and the, because they've written in such like a Tin Pan Alley style, that's just kind of how I imagined they got written. Uh, apparently a, a lot of the songs of this album were kind of written in bars around New York city. Like, I, I, and I think like the, the idea for the album came to him when he was in a club. I, I think it, it, would, it would be kind of interesting to see the inspiration for some of these songs. I think more so than it would be to see the actual recording and production of them. And one thing we, we haven't really talked about with Neutral Milk Hotel is that it's, it's 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 a pretty sonically marvelous album. Like the sound of and this and this song in particular with with the horns and this and the singing saw and, and just the, the way it kind of slowly builds from just an a you know an acoustic ballad to, to something pretty majestic by the end of it. It's a very impressive album. I think that the producer and like arrangers of it probably don't get the credit that they deserve just because it is seen as such a, a singular vision of, of Jeff Mangum's. Uh, so I, I, I would love to see, I would, I would love to actually see this, the, the song come together as like a full production, I think more for the neutral milk hotel song. And another thing about, uh, the magnetic fields is that Stephen Merritt is kind of notoriously cantankerous as a person. Uh, he's, he's, he's a, like a famously terrible interview. He doesn't like talking about process. He doesn't really, I don't think he really invites other people into his process easily. So I don't know if necessarily being a fly on the wall for that would be that interesting. I think a lot of it would just be happening in his own head. For a different a project, I was researching the history of, you know, rockism, poptimism and all that. And uh, one of the things that got brought up was Stephen Merritt in 2003 just like saying, like, I hate hip hop. I hate all of it. <laughs> like, He's definitely a person like it's good that his like the whatever fame he had predated Twitter. You would not oh, yeah. want that guy on Twitter. Like he, he would be a, a nightmare follow. I think. Yeah, there's no way. Uh, I so I would say also for me, um, just airplane over the sea, and this is maybe a little bit of a cheat as it often is. Um, just that, like in the process of recording it, right? Like I guess, like what was what else might have been recorded in a similar area around there at the time, right? That like almost invites the possibility that you might overhear something else from like Elephant Six, you know, like maybe you'd hear like Beulah in the background or fucking Apples in Stereo or of Montreal, you know what I mean? Like all these other groups that I was listening to at the same time, like that would be really like, just like maybe I'd get, I'd hear a little bit of that in the background too. Those are all really cool fucking bands and like they were all kind of in this little artistic community at the same time. Like that's fucking cool and just the thought of that that environment is really enticing just to be able to witness a little bit of that just, 
we're not doing an apples and stereo episode. <laughs> 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 I, I did get kind of nostalgic reading some of the Elephant Six stuff in preparation for this because so much about it just isn't possible today. The idea of like this one kind of geographically specific scene with like a bunch of artistic folks that knew each other since they were teens and they get together and they have this collective musical energy that ends up spilling over into all these different projects and kind of exp- each other like expanding out the, the, the creativity of one another just by kind of harnessing the same energy. Like, a bands don't really exist anymore in the same way. B scenes don't exist anymore in the same way. And C just like hanging out doesn't exist anymore in the same way. So so much about it just yeah. feels like a product of a different era at this point. That yeah, I, I, I wasn't really a huge fan of any of those bands at the time, uh, and even since like it's not really what I would consider my indie sweet spot. But I, I did kind of feel like a, a, a fondness for that moment, which is so kind of lost in time at this point. All right. Third question. Yes, the third, the most important question in, <laughs> in, in, in the history of the world. And, and actually, I think really fucking great for this. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, I love discovering things in, in my mouth rather than in my mind. Um, William Shatner, thespian, um, somewhat heroic guy, unless you look at him on Twitter and then uh, truly the enemy of the people. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, musician, question mark? Sure. Uh can do a Shatner version of one and only one of these songs. And so I put it to you, too, gentlemen. Which song must be shat upon? Is this, this is the most obvious one yet. Like really? This, I think William Shatner could not only do a good cover of Book of Love, I can't think of a better song for him to cover than Book of Love. It is just so perfectly in his wheelhouse. I think it would be, like, unironically good. Yeah, like, I guess airplane over the sea is like too much. I, I, I'm actually going in the airplane over the sea because so many of the lyrics of that song are kind of spoken as pronouncements. You know, like, what a beautiful <laughs> place! Like I can kind of see him sinking his teeth into that. Like, ah, oh, boy, that's a really good point. Just the declarativeness of of certain mm-hmm. lyrics in there. Yeah, man, maybe Book of Love is too easy. <laughs> we've we've got we've gone down that road before where it's just too obvious. I know, I don't know. I I still think it's probably right though. I think Book of Love is is just yeah. Like I actually like I agree with you, Todd. I think if he did it, unlike ninety nine percent of covers of that song, which are all garbage, I would <laughs> actually genuinely like the Shatner version of this. And for that, it yeah, it's, it's, it's it seems right fit, to me. Anyway. All right, let's do some uh, some listener responses to this pairing. Todd? Uh, James Ritchie writes, Longtime listener, I joined Patreon specifically to vote for In the Aeroplane Over the Sea because it's a life-changing song. There were a lot of comments like this. So, yeah. like, maybe we should, maybe we should, in fact, do this more often because people very much care about this. We didn't get a ton of votes, but the votes are very passionate. <laughs> we, got, we got a decent amount of votes. I, so, I'm glad that people did. I'm grateful for every yeah. vote. All right. Arizona Summer writes, thanks for bringing out my inner beard twirling indie hipster on this poll, fellas. I'll brew a pot of chamomile tea to celebrate. Hey, keep in mind, this is early. This is late 90s and early 2000s. It's not hipster. It's scenester. Scenester mm. was the word. Was it? It was. I think I, I think hipster had I think maybe at least an overlap at least. I remember scenester being the thing that like was the insulting thing that we called people in Brooklyn at the time. It was maybe it was a really brief like maybe again it was just like me living in New Jersey. Take a drink. Um, 
uh, that it was that like the part of New Jersey I grew up like was cabbage night the night before Halloween is cabbage night. And I grew up in the one little town where that was true. And maybe I was once again the one little town where it was scenester instead of hipster. But for my money, it's scenester at this time. Uh, I, I, I have to, t- to tell a quick story here, which is my, my first like New York proper New York experience. I went to a summer program at Columbia in the summer. of I'm sorry, at Barnard uh, in, in the summer of 2002. And I had a, I had a roommate. Uh, who uh, who was was also an indie rock fan? I probably talked about a bunch of these albums with him. Uh, but he was obsessed with the idea of going to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, which which he kept uh, he he kept uh, calling the hipster capital of the world. I don't oh, think that is. he even really knew what that meant. I certainly didn't know what that meant. Uh, but but he he knew it was like oh, it was the place to be. We got to go to Williamsburg. So one night we went to Williamsburg and like all we found were like a bunch of bodegas and like clothing stores and like de- definitely not like like just the the, the haven of of indie rock and like live music and all, all the stuff that he was probably hoping to find. But he kept, uh, he kept like pretending that everything we saw was like super hips. Like, Oh, look at this hip clothing store. Look at this hip bodega like, hipster capital of the world. So at least by 2002, uh, hipster was part of the vernacular well, to the point that, uh, high school kids who didn't actually know anything about hipster dumb, uh, knew to go looking for it. At the very well, I tell you what, I, I got taken to Williamsburg in 2013 and Oh my God, the beards and sandals. Like I, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I it, felt it like up, I was certainly. In, I felt like I was in a different world entirely. I, all well, I anyway. know is that it's for it's for people that are in their twenties. I am a forty-year-old person, and I can't go to Williamsburg without it turning into a skeleton and falling apart immediately. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway. Um, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, okay. Light, relentless writes. Up until about last year, I genuinely thought John Green made up Neutral Milk Hotel for his novel An Abundance of Catherines. <laughs> It, it is a very fake sounding band name. It's an excellent if it, if it didn't exist as a real band name, it would have to be a fake band name. You know, I got to be honest. Uh, what sounds like a fake name is the novel An Abundance of Catherine's. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> OK, Jennifer Bird writes, this is red right ankle by the Decemberist erasure. Oh, yeah, I had I had considered Decemberists, but yeah, we probably should talk about the Decemberists is kind of like the mainstream extension of the Neutral Milk Hotel fandom, like like yeah. all the mainstream attention that probably should have gone to Neutral Milk Hotel during their lifetime mm. eventually spilled over to the Decemberists having a number one album. I, I think they're a much, much weaker band and they don't have any of this sort of edge or vitality or sort of like there's like a kind of violence to this album that we haven't really talked about, but like it's yeah. a bloody album. And there's like there's just none of that in the Decemberists. The Decemberists are like the safe water down version of Neutral Milk Hotel. I, I, I can never stand them. Well, you know, at least at, that is an opinion of, about the Decemberists. And I can use that to start developing opinions on my own because I've <laughs> n- never had one like everything I've ever heard from them. It's like, huh, that's a, that's a, that exists. All right. John writes. I can't stand 69 love songs. It's another toilet sessions box set released as an album. Finish your damn songs. If you expect me to buy your album. (laughs) I respect that take, even though I disagree with it. So do I. That's why I read it. Like it's reasoned, you know? Yeah. All right. There is logic to it. Yeah. Brian Tierney writes neutral milk hotels. Indie license was revoked long ago. That can't be true. That. Neutral Milk Hotel yeah. sold out. I missed yeah, that. I don't know. Like they've because so many people listen to it. Is that it? Because it's so I, I well think known. So, like they're becoming mainstream. Like like stuff that wasn't known at the time, but like everyone knows them now. Jeff like, Mangum lost I, it. And I don't never think made they're there yet, record, but like, man. There's no way. There's it's yeah, for, wow. 
It's for it's forever in indie darling. It doesn't matter if everybody has heard it at least by name at this point. Yeah, I'm going to tell I you, there's maybe, still maybe a lot if, of people that has, have never bothered to listen to it. I don't know, maybe when like Miley Cyrus breaks out Hall in 1945 and her next uh, like <laughs> holy shit, I'm fucking ready. That sounds like the greatest thing I ever heard. That album's coming up in like three weeks. Anyway, I don't know why I'm so excited about Miley Cyrus. She's great. I would love for her to do it. Do it, Miley. Do it. I know you listen to this podcast. Do Holland 1945. I will love you forever. I already do. But please do it anyway. One more, I guess, odd take, or at least a take I'd never heard from uh, Jacob Ailson said, putting poor magnetic fields up against indie royalty neutral milk hotel is like sort of the hipster version of putting up the kinks against the Beatles. Like, sure, the kinks are great, but I feel like I feel like I'd be dismissed as a shitty contrarian for even trying to make their case. It's like I always thought they were on parallel grounds, I guess. Like, I'm not sure I agree with that. That's a little that's a little disrespectful to the magnetic fields. I I, I mean, I think that Neutral Milk Hotel probably does have like a bigger cult to it, in part just because they disappeared immediately after this album. Like, I guarantee you, if if Stephen Merritt just like kind of put his pen down in 2000, it's like, all right, that's it. Last last one testament, 69 love songs then that album would have the same sort of reputation that In the Airplane Over the Sea does. Yeah. But because he's still so prolific, you know, you kind of take him for granted in a way you never really can with Neutral Milk Hotel. To me, it's like the difference between, it's more, it's it's less Kings versus Beatles and more John versus Paul. Mm, that's like, people have a tendency to respect John more as an artist because he's dead. Like, no offense, it's because he's dead. Like, and because he's more difficult, you know, yeah. he's more self-consciously yeah. uh, challenging. Yeah. But like, it, does that is somehow Paul McCartney like less of an artist? I, I don't fucking buy it. I mean, like most of Abbey Road is fucking him, man. Like I, he's, well, they, an, they, he's an incredible fucking artist. So both, anyway, both yeah. Merritt and uh, Paul love their uh, pre-rock pop. So like that. that oh, my gosh. Yeah. And absolutely checks out. Bam. All right. <laughs> okay. One last comment. This will be it. Brian Tierney writes, these two feel like if you took Heroes by David Bowie, gave one the instrumentals and one the vocals. Uh, I guess I sort of see that. I guess there is a sort of like Eastern European. I can uh, sort of see it too, but like it took me. galaxy brain shit that just got (laughs) real. Damn. It took me a long time to figure out which is which. And actually, now that I think about it, I can't remember which one it was. So... Yeah, this is this is another take that I don't agree with, but I respect. You know, I yeah. I, 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 I like the, the, yeah, the the galaxy brain level of of, of taking this going into that. Okay, we got we got to finish this up. We've been talking for a long time. Yep, and it's getting late, <laughs> late in New York. What? Who do you think won? Who's who's the winner? I mean, certainly I would have thought before you read the comments, and now it seems pretty inevitable afterwards. The Neutral Milk Hotel probably took this pretty easily, but I I, I do wonder. Like, I, I feel like if you if you had more, I don't know if you had like a bunch of fans that aren't aren't really fans of either of these two albums or artists specifically i feel like there's a better chance that they would be familiar with the book of love and maybe a better chance that they would like it not knowing anything more about either two artists so maybe you could get kind of some casual votes in there but it, it, it does seem like if most of the people that are voting are passionate fans then it's going to be neutral Milk so Hotel. what you're saying is you feel like maybe like as we were counting as we got further in the mail-in vote said like <laughs> anyway go ahead todd I, i'm pretty sure i know what the result is but like let's hear it yeah Okay, for a total of 269 to 164, which is a lot more votes than I was worried we were going to get, the, the the winner with a 62 to 38% margin is in the aeroplane over the sea. I just like that yes. 69 was in there still. <laughs> 269, yes. Bam. Oh, man. Pretty soon, 6ix9ine uh, will release 6ix9ine love songs. And, uh, oh, boy. <laughs> it's going to be 69 that, songs. The great long. romantic that's, that's, artists of our lifetime. That's, that's going to be an album that 
isn't challenging, but is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, thank you all for uh, supporting us. All our new patrons who are diehards of either of these bands. Thank you for uh, signing up. You, uh, you know, uh, you can sign up for the Patreon. Give us a dollar. Uh, you give us a dollar. We'll get uh, our bonus episodes this month. We're going to have to release something about UHF. Oh, that... no. <laughs> how, will, oh, no. how will I live? I'll have to talk about Weird Al, the worst possible thing. I, I <laughs> Woe is me. Yeah, $20. If you want to do it, you can get uh, you can choose what movie that we do, uh, which we'll be doing pretty soon. We'll be doing the next uh, uh, the next reader poll, the next reader poll. Um, and what's the what's the next one? What's the next episode? All right, yeah, I am after this extremely indie episode. I'm tu- I'm tuning back to Bob FM. We oh, are uh, we are going to uh, be doing uh, Lionel Richie's All Night Long versus Cool and the Gang's Celebration. <sighs> All right, because <laughs> that is the mood I am in. All right, <laughs> I like that you picked that. I um. I did. I'm gonna put it out there. People should listen. People listen to this episode. Um, if they follow me on Twitter, they already know this. But I'm trying to push Todd to do um, a um, animation theme episode at some point in the near future. I think we should do an animation uh, month, Todd. I'm telling you right uh, now, where we do uh, an East versus West. <laughs> Don't. He literally pulled out a hammer, folks. He pulled out a hammer. You can let me have my way occasionally. <laughs> hey, look how well. See, it worked this time. I'm right about things sometimes. All right. Okay. I think. <laughs> thank you so much. We'll. Thank uh, you. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.